We are uh, delighted and uh, honored to have with us this morning an associate professor from the University of Maryland, Peter Malios, who has worked on Macon and uh, the business of importing foreign literary talent to the United States uh, in the uh, in the zenith of Macon's uh, literary and critical career. Uh, Peter is. Uh, the author of a book published by uh, the distinguished Stanford University Press. Copies are uh, in the hallway. Uh, Stanford prices its books about where Hopkins does, I'm afraid to say, uh, but it's uh, very much worth the price. Thanks for being with us, Peter. And pl please welcome Peter Malios, University of Maryland. It's a great honor to be here today, although I must say, let me get this straight. I'm following a gentleman with a hundred years of accomplishments, including being with Mencken at the end of Prohibition, and I'm following Mencken himself. <laughs> That's a bar set pretty high. Um, it's an enormous honor um, and a great pleasure, a very personal pleasure to be here today that, that I'll talk about in just a moment. But I should begin um, by thanking Dr. Brueger and the H.L. Mencken Society for inviting me here today. Um, I should also confess that the talk that I'm about to give, which I think is billed as H.L. Mencken, Foreign Literature, and the, and the Invention of Free Speech in Modern America, um, that title uh, is a bit grand, and, and this talk is, is a bit less grand than that title suggests. Um, though Mencken's interest in foreign literature and the productive political purposes, like free speech, to which it can be put, are very much at the horizon of this paper, and I, I hope that the way it ends is with a sort of punch on that note, I, I thought it best in the 20 minutes or so that I have to speak to concentrate on a specific foreign author and the specific political purposes Mencken influentially invests in him. And that specific author, I'm sure it will be no surprise, given what Bob said, is the Polish-English novelist Joseph Conrad. And the story that I'm about to tell comes out of the part of the book that I've just written, Our Conrad Constituting American Modernity. Our Conrad tells the story about how and why Conrad became a massively influential phenomenon in the United States, both for American writers and throughout American culture and politics generally during the first half of the 20th century. But while I was writing the book, I found myself constantly thinking of Mencken's scholars and readers and devotees as an ideal audience for the book. While I was writing this book, it's, it's a Conrad book, and it's generally about his importance to American writers and, and in culture and politics in the United States generally. But while I was writing it, I found myself constantly thinking of Mencken scholars and readers as an ideal audience, for Mencken really is very much the hero and recurrent protagonist of its narrative. Um, he is the galvanizer of what I call the modern American invention of Conrad as a master literary figure, and he is the key to the political significance in America of Conrad and other foreign writers like him. To me, one learns indeed just as much about the subtlety and significance and the continuing importance and rich interests of Mencken as one does learning all those things about Conrad in considering the two together. 
And for these reasons, it's truly a pleasure, and it's, it's more than a pleasure. It is a thrill to be standing here at the Enoch Pratt Free Library on Mencken Days to at least share some of my discoveries with you. My general thesis about why it is that Conrad became so popular in the United States from about 1914 forward is suggested by the map of Conrad's works that I reproduced for you on the handout. It's sort of on the front inside page. Um, This map first appeared as the front end papers of the original American edition of Conrad's novel, Victory, which was published in 1915 by Doubleday Page and Company. Um, And you can see that the map is a chart. It gives you the whole map of the world. And the United States is in the middle, and Conrad's works tend to take you everyplace else, and the map tends to chart that. Um, At core, the, the map is designed to suggest to American readers in this period how Conrad's works can take you to pretty much any place in the world outside the United States, which, like I said, is essentially itself at the blank center of the map. In this moment of the historical onset of World War I, 1915, when this came out, this message, I think, is appealing to Americans. The prospect of Conrad becomes keenly and urgently interesting for them because it suggests how Conrad's fiction can provide mediating access to the very international sphere that is now thoroughly in crisis and threatening to pull the United States into the First World War. Conrad, moreover, doesn't simply offer a kind of virtual education in or a portal of understanding to the rest of the world. His notoriously ambiguous and contradictory fiction also offers Americans in this moment of sort of high international anxiety and and the emergence of the U.S. on, on the world stage, Conrad offers them a kind of battlefield in which to debate the nature of the U.S.'s relations and obligations to the rest of the world, and indeed to debate as well the shadow of the world's conflicts within the domestic confines of the U.S. itself. Now, Mencken, I want to suggest, in ways that I really want to open this up for conversation because I really want to know, having spent three or four years of the ten years it took me to write this book, immersed in Mencken materials. For me, um, Mencken in ways that changed my understanding of both his political conduct during World War I and the significance of his interests in foreign literatures generally, he sees this opportunity suggested by the map for political battle in Conrad's image, and he really is the force that sets it in motion. And he does it twice. First, on the national stage during World War I, he uses Conrad as a lightning rod of political contestation. And then, in the South, in the 1920s, and I'm thinking of Fred Hobson's book there, but when he stirs things up in the South, Conrad is very much his lightning rod, or a lightning rod of his in that moment, too. But before I get to these issues of the specific politics of Mencken's interest in Conrad, I want first to establish just how deeply personal and categorically supreme Mencken's investments in Conrad were, because I think the details are quite astonishing, and they grid the political applications of Conrad um, that Mencken extends from them. Mencken's fascination with Conrad began in his second smart set essay in December 1908, and it runs consistently thereafter, up through the diary pages and several autobiographies he wrote much later on in life. Terry Teachout tells the story of how even after his stroke and in his 70s, Mencken would have William Manchester come to his home four mornings a week to read out loud to him from Conrad and Twain. 
Moreover, throughout the period of the 10s and 20s, when Mencken was advancing his influential cannon-shaping campaigns on behalf of various American literary writers, most famously Poe and Twain and certainly Dreiser and Sinclair Lewis, Conrad remained a sort of golden yardstick for the rest, the most consistent, ecstatic, unqualified, and thoroughgoing of Mencken's literary enthusiasms. There is thus no coincidence that Mencken's pivotal 1917 volume, A Book of Prefaces, which Marianne Rogers observes, Mencken himself understood as, quote, the most important book on its effect, in its effect on his professional career. And I'll get back to A Book of Prefaces shortly. Um, that this book both begins with a long essay on Conrad and closes with an appeal to the coming of our Conrad, which is where I get my title from. It's Mencken's phrase. Um, in addition to the book of prefaces, Mencken wrote many lines in various places attesting to how, quote, one approaches Conrad in various and unhappy moods, depressed, dubious, despairing, and one leaves him in the clear yellow sunshine that Nietzsche found in Bizet's music. Mencken writes on many, many occasions, as anyone familiar with the biographies knows, how Conrad's short, and the letters too, how Conrad's short story Youth is, quote, the best short story in English, about how the youth volume is probably the best book of imaginative writing that the English literature of the 20th century can yet show and about how Heart of Darkness has a perfection of design which one encounters only rarely and miraculously in prose fiction. Now, I've reproduced for you as a handout on the next page after the map um, from Mencken's 1922 essay, Conrad Revisited, a final example that I think is very revealing of the soaring degree to which Mencken's rhetoric almost invariably rises when Conrad is on the table. This is what he says. A very great man, this Mr. Conrad, as yet, I believe, decidedly underestimated even by many of his advocates. When Run reflects that the Nobel Prize has been given to such third raters as Newt Hampson and Rabindranath Tagore, with Conrad disdainfully passed over, one begins to grasp the depth and density of the ignorance prevailing in the world, even among the relatively enlightened. One Lord Jim, as human document in his work of art, is worth all the works produced by all the Hamsons and Tagores since the time of Ramses II. It is indeed an indecency of criticism to speak of such unlike things in the same breath, as well talk of Mendelssohn in terms of Brahms. Nor is Lord Jim a chance masterpiece, an isolated peak. On the contrary, it is but one unit in a long series of strong and almost incomparable works, a series sprung suddenly and overwhelmingly into full dignity with Almayer's folly. I challenge the nobility and gentry of Christendom to point to, to another opus one as magnificently planned and turned out as Almayer's folly. The more one studies it, the more it seems miraculous. If it is not a work of absolute genius, that no other work of absolute genius exists on earth. This is Mencken, the most critical force in the history of American letters, writing this about Conrad. What are we to make of these words? So striking in their absolute sense of affirmation and allegiance. How are we to understand the affinity with Conrad and the urgency of reading Conrad that lies behind these words? 
personally, for the tone of Mencken's words are so personal that I think we need to start here. And in ways that I can't get into now, often when Mencken writes about Conrad, he'll begin by saying, I was having a bad day. I was having a blue afternoon and I read Conrad and, and things changed. This is a very personal connection for him. And his politics, I think, comes out of this, this kind of feeling. I think the answer of this connection lies, um, there are many answers that I think one could bring in, but for me, it lies with the idea of exile, with a conjoint sense of exile that runs between Conrad and Mencken. There's a very poignant moment, and a smart one too, in one of the smart set essays Mencken writes on Conrad's story, Youth. Itself a story about a young romantic second mate. It's Marlowe, the same one as in Heart of Darkness, but he's younger in the story, whose powers of youthful illusion shield him from repeated disasters aboard his ship. And in this essay, Mencken says that both youth and Huckleberry Finn, another one of his favorite stories, he says in the smart set he reads both these stories every year. He argues that they're fundamentally the same story. He says that for him they're like two peas in a pod, both studies of the reaction of young blood to the terrifying. I think that's an extraordinary reading of both texts. Now, what's poignant, especially, about this comparison is that in the essay that I'm talking about, Mencken then goes on to gloss the true meaning of youth, not in terms of the invincibility of of, of illusions, but rather in terms of the inevitable passing away of one's inevitable expulsion from the happy days and romantic illusions of youth. Narrated by Marlowe, the second mate when he's much older, he's an older person talking about his experiences of life, youth, Mencken argues, is ultimately an aging man's elegy upon the hope and high resolution that the years have blown away. Mencken loved this story. He loved it as much as he did, I would argue, because its sense of exile, of being cast out of Happy Days in Eden, um, which is clearly an expression of the Polish-English novelist Conrad's own sense of exile, speaks deeply to Mencken's own self-defining sense of exile himself, perhaps from the happy days of pre-modern Baltimore that he describes in the first of his three-volume autobiography that has that name, perhaps from the Germany of his ancestors, whose loss Mencken l- would lament as leaving him forever as a homesick foreigner. And one remembers that really moving um, comment from his diaries where he says, after all these years I remain a foreigner but on the note of exile certainly from the conditions of modern America whose conditions produced a hostility and repulsion in Mencken a feeling of alienation and something like existential homelessness which lie at the jocular but also unmistakably bitter and pugnacious core of nearly all Mencken's writings Now, to be in exile, however, involves something more than these personal concerns, these subjective experiences of alienation and thwarted nostalgia. I think it also entails a kind of objective and critical remove from dominant imposed social norms and ideas that gives rise to a critical capacity to think, speak, and act against the grain and view those dominant norms and ideas, and I know I sound like a professor, but I really mean this, that being in exile means that you can... um, see things not as naturally given, but subject to challenge. Um, Looking at the world as not a natural phenomenon, but something that can be challenged as a species of choice, contingency, and power. 
and it is here on the note of the exile's capacity f- capacities for critical interference and subversion and challenge that I think we can bring politics back into the question of Mencken's relishing and champion of Con- championing of Conrad, and in a way that changes the picture, I think, with our understanding of Mencken during World War One. I think our usual understanding of Mencken's political trajectory during the Great War years, 1914 to 1918, is one of increasing and then ultimately more or less completely coerced silence. Mencken's partiality to the Germans and hostility to the English, this view goes, though initially quite outspoken in Mencken's freelance columns in the Baltimore Evening Sun, first becomes censored as a matter of sun policy, and then becomes criminally unspeakable under federal statute as the U.S. moves to enter the war in April 1917, with making himself, so the story goes, taking silent and apolitical refuge in purely literary activities like the smart set somewhere along the way. But I don't think that's right. I think Mencken's book of prefaces, um, a text consisting of four long essays on Conrad, Theodore Dreiser, James Hunnaker, and Puritanism as a literary force generally, a text Mencken began to compose in the run-up to the U.S. entry into the war and was first published in September 1917, five months after, suggests how misleading this anti-political view of Mencken's wartime career is. Rather, a book of prefaces I want to suggest is quite concertedly and powerfully a coded anti-war text, one which places Mencken's exilic resistance to dominant Anglo-America into powerful political action, and one which uses Conrad as a coded literary means of the kind of cultural and political resistance Mencken will later theorize of foreign literary works in the U.S. more generally. It's part of his larger project of bringing foreign literature to and foreignizing the terms of the United States. Now, I mentioned at the outset of this talk that Conrad's American publishers, Doubleday Page and Companies, published the map of Conrad's works in 1915 to emphasize Conrad's relevance to the increasing international circumference of the Great War and its domestic relevance. What I left out is that Doubleday also promoted Conrad as a pro-war and pro-English figure. And actually, if you turn to the handout, it's worth looking at because it directly invokes Mencken. If you turn the page, you'll see an original. So there's Conrad on the cover of Time magazine. That's the results of Mencken's efforts, really, is that Conrad becomes so important, he becomes seen on the cover of a political, as much as anything else, magazine like Time magazine. But on the next page, you'll see an advertisement for the novel Victory, which is where the end papers appeared. And you'll see a statue of um, the winged victory of Salome, This is a heavily militarized image during the war. If you turn the page again, you'll see a war bond savings poster that has the same image. This is what is filled in with a woman's uh, depiction. But this is a war image, and Doubleday is marketing Conrad in this vein as a kind of militaristic um, and very British writer. And yet if you look back at the victory advertisement, you'll see them quoting Mencken. H.L. Mencken says, the book's great, you should read it. Although Mencken's view of this was totally different um, than, than Doubleday's. And that's my point, is that Mencken, who along with Doubleday, forms the kind of engine, the acrimonious oppositional engine 
Mencken of Conrad's um, American Ascent. It's really Mencken who galvanizes Conrad for the American imagination by framing him in exactly the opposite political terms through which Doubleday is trying to sell the world or the country on Conrad. And his construction of Conrad, Mencken's in a book of prefaces, entails three very sharp and different lines of attack on American conceptions of its own Anglo-Saxon allegiance. It is in a book of prefaces, I believe, that we begin to see Mencken's understanding of literature, especially foreign-authored literature, as a potential American political force. One, as he says, is an early prejudices essay that, quote, says something against something. In a book of prefaces, Mencken's first strategy, and again, this is a book that's really pretending to be just a literary book, but not really pretending that hard. Um, and if, if you know this book, it's amazing how actually that he'll go on for pages and pages about purely political concerns. They come out of nowhere. Um, but it's a very sophisticated and interesting book. In the book, Mencken's first strategy is to present Conrad as a figure of resistance to England and any kind of alliance with Britain. Drawing on the trope of the exile, Mencken argues that Conrad's place within the culture of Anglo-Saxondom is one of distance and irreducible estrangement. He says, that place is isolated and remote. He is neither of it nor quite in it. In this reading, Mencken's, Conrad occupies a removed and alien space and frame from which to think against the grain of Britain's dominant political grain, and through which an American, following Conrad's lead, lead, might begin to question the ostensibly natural or historic or moral Anglophile and pro-British emphases of his or her own culture and national political policies. An alien to his place in time, not actually an Englishman, and indeed obviously no Englishman. By the way, these comments actually kind of ticked Conrad off. Um, <laughs> um, Conrad becomes for Mencken a means of questioning not only English, English, but also English-allied Anglo-American, moralizing, propagandizing, crusading tendencies. In an earlier essay in the Smart Set, written in times of freer speech, this is early 1915, Mencken had explicitly, explicitly described Conrad as, quote, an enigmatic, ironical, half-concealed, sneering immigrant, implicitly challenging with the resilience of Nietzsche the massive British propagandizing efforts during the First World War. Though the Great War, now joined by the Americans, remains explicitly unnamed and unnameable in a book of prefaces, the same critique is nonetheless clearly advanced. Mencken draws on both the ironic title and the true tragic meaning. He's one of the first good readers of Conrad's novel, Victory, of Conrad's novel, Victory, to convert the very master sign of Anglo-American military success, righteousness, and patriotism in the war, the word victory, a term ubiquitous in American newspapers, speeches, slogans, and as the title to various war bonds, Mencken turns it into the deadly reverse. Um, he says, the whole Conradian system sums its up in the title Victory, an incomparable piece of irony. Imagine a better label for that tragic record of heroic yet bootless effort, that matchless picture in microcosm of the relentlessly cruel revolutions in the macrocosm. Victory ends with a massacre of all the chief personages, a veritable catastrophe of pointless blood." 
if this was Mencken's commentary on it, if this was Mencken's assessment of Woodrow Wilson's decision to enter the war on the side of the British, Mencken also uses Heart of Darkness, and especially the figure of Mr. Kurtz in Heart of Darkness, to question the discrepancy between lofty Anglo-Saxon moralizing rhetoric and the actual material purposes motivating British and British-allied participation in the war. Neither a propagandist nor a moralist, Conrad Mencken argues in a crucial turn of phrase, this is Mencken, makes war on nothing. And rather instead, like the anti-colonial critiques conducted in his own fiction and like Conrad's own anti-colonial relation to England, um, helps, he helps Americans to question their own essentially colonial relation to British political policy and culture. This is a point that after the war, Mencken will make repeatedly. I'm sure you know this, that we're all essentially still uh, colonies of the British Empire, and that by reading people like Conrad, we can learn not how to be such gaping colonists, he says. Again, in a book of prefaces, the Great War is not explicitly mentioned, but war generally certainly is, as Mencken also emphasizes the general peril of international affiliation with England and in British-allied terms. Now, there are also, and I'm close to the end, there are also two more specifically domestic critiques of ideas of Anglo-Saxon supremacy and affiliation that Mencken advances through Conrad in a book of prefaces as well, further anchoring the, the importance Mencken sees in Conrad as a simultaneously literary and political figure. One concerns immigration and domestic loyalty to the American state. Writing at a time when, as Mencken put it later, German Americans like himself found themselves members of a race lately of worse odor among 100% Americans than either Jews or Negroes, Conrad becomes for Mencken, in a book of prefaces, a crucial mongrel, multilingual thinking, emphatically foreign and Slav, um, proudly alien and inassimilable figure of immigrant and free-thinking resistance. There is a wild moment in a book of prefaces where, based on the model of the mongrel Conrad, James Honecker becomes described, American art critic abroad, becomes described as an ancestrally Irish-American, temperamentally German-American, self-declaredly Kelto-Magyar, culturally Keltro-Czech, gastronomically, because this is Mencken, of course, um, Kelto-Viennese, spiritually Czech-Irish, or is it Magyar-Irish or Czech-Irish, Mencken says, marriage of unearthly elements. This aggregation of German, Irish, Austrian, and various Slovak, Magyar, and Bohemian national elements, the latter all internal to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, is not simply a celebration of non-Anglo immigrant diversity and ethnic hybridity, although it's definitely that, and really boldly at this time in history, right? It's also a veritable stitching together of anti-allied allegiance, a tapestry of the central powers, and an internal integration in the form of the American citizen Hunnaker of the enemy. So to say that these aren't political, this, this is as political as it gets, I think. Mencken here is taunting wartime protocols of 100% allegiance both to Anglo-American ethnic norms and to the Anglo-allied American state, and Conrad is for Mencken 
been the master mobilizing figure of this kind of resistance. And this, this leads to the second and really final domestic point I want to make about how Conrad also serves Mencken as a means of challenging Anglo-American political norms of democracy as well. And this has been the beginning of a whole new way of, of thinking about Mencken and, and other stuff for me. Throughout A Book of Prefaces, Mencken identifies Conrad not only as an anti-British and pro-immigrant figure, but also as an aristocratic figure, defined in opposition to the excesses and unwarranted dogmas of democracy. There are long stretches of digression, although they're not really digression, in the Conrad essay about both the ideological unsoundness and abuses of contemporary democracy, especially at the expense of civil liberties through unchecked processes of majoritarian tyranny and state assertion. And it becomes clear by the end that Mencken is advancing Conrad and other foreign and foreignizing writers like him as a means of cultivating a cultural sensibility and prejudice against democracy. Now, this does not at all mean, I would strongly argue, that Mencken rejects democracy. Not only do I think Mencken sees no realistic alternative to democracy in the United States, I also think that the whole secret of Mencken's success and importance, and it's one that Walter Lippmann gets at in the famous essay in 1926, where he describes Mencken as the most powerful influence on this whole generation of educated people, the secret of Mencken's success is Mencken's very insistence in actually engaging the democratic sphere of American culture and its people and politics generally. He is really speaking to and concerned with the people of America at all times, which is very different than most other high esthetes of this period, whether their politics were to the, to the right or the left. Rather, what Mencken understands is that to create, and I believe this is just the sincerest conviction of, of his that often remains unspoken because it's a little earnest for, for Mencken, but what I think Mencken understands is that to create terms of modern, democ modern American democracy that are actually protective of civil liberties, there must be a kind of cultural sea change affected through such agencies as literature that support and anchor such political developments. As Mencken argues, and this is in the Conrad essay, the fundamental causes of all the grotesque phenomena flowing out of American democracy are to be fundamentally sought, not in economics or formal political processes, but rather in the habits of mind of the American people. For meaningful democratic evolution to happen, it must wait until a sense of reason and justice shows itself in the culture of the American people. And so for Mencken, Conrad becomes a crucial instrumentation of this cultural and ultimately political process. If I may say one final word about free speech, because... I'm involved in another project right now where I'm actually claiming that Mencken is one of the inventors of, of the modern right to free speech as we understand it right now. And this is a point that goes to the, the significance of a book of prefaces as well. Mencken's A Book of Prefaces was written at the absolute low point of U.S. history when it comes to free speech guarantees and First Amendment protections. As a matter of Supreme Court precedent, 
every single theory of modern free speech protection, and there are about five, and every landmark opinion um, articulating what modern free speech rights entail, whether by Oliver Wendell Holmes or Louis Brandeis or Learned Hand or Felix Fransfurter, they all extend from the crisis generated by the perfectly legal at the time Espionage and Sedition Acts of 1917 and 18. All modern free speech jurisprudence comes from this very abyss in which Mencken has the guts to write. In ways I can't develop now, but want to leave you with as a closing remark, um, I believe that the single greatest interest of a book of prefaces lies in how, in that moment of crisis, it implicitly theorizes all the developments, all the theories of free speech that are, now, that are judicially to unfold throughout the 20th century. This happens through Mencken's analysis of foreign and foreignizing literary figures like Conrad, and it includes the recognition that American political change in this regard in itself cannot happen without the supporting cultural infrastructure inf instrumentalized by means like literature. Thank you again. It's a great honor to be here today.